Join us now for Education Matters, a weekly look at the real people and real stories in education across North Carolina. Welcome to Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm Keith Poston. Our guest this week is best-selling author Richard Rothstein. He's a senior fellow at the Haas Institute at the University of California at Berkeley and a distinguished fellow of the Economic Policy Institute. His research has focused primarily on segregation in the United States in both education and housing. In his latest book, The Color of Law, he tackles what he says is the myth that our cities became segregated by what he called de facto segregation from personal choices and personal prejudices. Instead, he details in, in excruciating detail, frankly, how laws and policies across our country, both state and local and federal laws, promoted discriminatory patterns that we still see today. Before we tackle our main topic, we start with headlines, a quick scan of education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. It's been more than a month since Hurricane Florence hit North Carolina, and the damage and financial impact is still being tallied. Hurricane Matthew in 2016 resulted in about $14 million in damages to schools, and Hurricane Florence's price tag is likely to be triple that. Six schools are on the short list to be taken over by the state as part of the new innovative school district created by the General Assembly in 2016. By law, once a school is selected, that district must turn the school over to an entity selected by the state to run the operations, or the school must be closed and the students assigned elsewhere. Now, while all the districts have been notified that they're on the list, Deputy State Superintendent Eric Hall said engaging with parents and the communities in all these areas will be a challenge before final decisions are made, which will likely be this week. Critics of the ISD model say that lack of community input and engagement is one of the key factors as why they've had such poor results with the similar program in Tennessee where the North Carolina ISD was designed from. If you want to read more about these headlines and other topics we cover each week, please visit our website at ncforum.org, click on Education Matters, and you'll find more about these headlines as well as everything else we cover this week. As I said at the top of the show, we have a very special guest with us today, Richard Rothstein. His most recent book, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, tackles what he says is the myth that American cities came to be racially divided by de facto segregation. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so, read the book. I told you it, 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 it made me mad and also kind of was, was embarrassing to think about our, our country's history. The basic argument in your book is, yes, there are racist individuals that contributed to housing segregation, and there were personal choices that people made. Um, but that the overwhelming amount of government policy at the state level, the local level, and the federal level was what really explicitly forced black people to live in different places from white people. I mean, I didn't know how extensive it was. Am I, am I alone in not knowing how, how deep it was? Maybe you and I were alone, not knowing how deep it was. But I was stunned by the extent of the government involvement uh, that I found, uh, as you were when you read it. Uh, we all have this myth. We share it. We say we have de facto segregation, that the reason that African Americans and whites in every metropolitan area in this country uh, don't live near one another uh, is because of accidental private prejudice or real estate agents or banks that discriminated or maybe people just like to live with each other. And, right. and so long as we think that it happened by accident, we also think that there's nothing much we can do about it. Even though in the 20th century we made a 
decision to abolish racial segregation, and we did it in schools and in lunch counters, buses and water fountains even, but we left untouched the biggest segregation of all because we had adopted a myth that unlike all these other forms of segregation that we were resolved to eliminate, this one, residential segregation, was accidental. And if it happened by accident, it can only unhappen by accident. And the point of my book is to show that because the residential segregation of every metropolitan area was as consciously created by government policy, by rules, by regulations, by explicit government action, as these other forms of segregation were equally obligated to undo it as we were obligated to undo these other civil, civil rights violations. Give us some examples of how this played out. The Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, for example, they were one of the um, major, and this is, you know, the federal government. I think a lot of us think about the feds as folks who help protect civil rights, but actually the Federal Housing Administration was one that played a pretty big role in, in not allowing black people to own homes. Well, though many, many policies followed at the federal, state, and local level to enforce racial segregation to create it, the Federal Housing Administration, as you say, was one of them. Uh, the Federal Housing Administration embarked on a policy in the 1940s and 50s and 60s to suburbanize the entire white working class population to move it out of cities into single family homes in the suburbs. This was an explicitly racial policy. African Americans were prohibited from participating in this policy. Whites were subsidized. And your uh, watchers, your viewers, uh, they're familiar with all of these suburbs. They're in every metropolitan area in this country. Uh, probably the best well-known is Levittown, east of New York City. Um, maybe a, some may remember a, so a song that Pete Seeger used to sing about little boxes on a hillside made of ticky-tacky, and they all look the same. That's a suburb just as large as Levittown, uh, south of San Francisco. They could never have assembled the capital to build 17,000 homes in one place. That's how big Levittown was. Wow. Uh, the only way, uh, no bank would be crazy enough to lend him the capital to build that. The only way he could build that subdivision, that suburb, as well as all these hundreds of others across the country, was by going to the Federal Housing Administration, making a commitment to the Federal Housing Administration that he would never sell a home to an African American. The Federal Housing Administration even required him and these hundreds of other developers to place a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale to African Americans or rental even to African Americans. Once he made that commitment, the Federal Housing Administration guaranteed his bank loans. The result was that the white working class population was moved out of cities in, with enormous subsidy. FHA and VA mortgages enabled them to buy homes which in today's dollars cost about $100,000. Uh, they could pay less uh, for these homes with their monthly carrying charges with a VA mortgage, for example, returning war veterans, uh, than they were paying for rent in public housing. Public housing was not initially for poor people. You couldn't get into public housing unless you had a stable job or good employment history. Uh, the first public housing in this country was built during the New Deal, during the Roosevelt administration. Uh, the Public Works Administration built it. Everywhere it segregated public housing, frequently segregating neighborhoods that had previously been integrated. Uh, in my book, I refer to the great African-American poet, novelist, uh, Langston Hughes. Uh, he wrote in his autobiography how he grew up in an integrated Cleveland neighborhood, not unusual in the mid-20th century, yeah. uh, early 20th century, simply because most jobs were located downtown and workers didn't have automobiles to get to work. So if you had a downtown factory district with African-American workers and Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants and rural migrants, they all live in broadly the same neighborhoods where they could walk to work. Well, the Federal uh, Housing Administration, the, the Public Works Administration, rather, in, in, during the New Deal, uh, 
demolished housing in the integrated Cleveland neighborhood where Langston Hughes had grown up to create two separate projects, one for African Americans and one for whites, creating a pattern of segregation in Cleveland that otherwise would never have developed with such strength. But I came to understand that the reason we have the achievement gap in schools, uh, which is the major focus of education policy, is because we have concentrated the most disadvantaged children, mostly African-American, but other low-income families as well, in single neighborhoods uh, where they attend schools where their, their disadvantages are concentrated. And when children come to school, uh, and where every child in the school comes to school either sleepless because of asthma or with lead poisoning, which uh, decreases their IQ, or with stress from economic insecurity or homelessness, or exposure to violence, when every child in a school has those kinds of problems, it's inconceivable that that school, on average, can achieve the kind of results that a school can achieve when children come to school well-rested and um, in good health and uh, well-nourished and economically secure. It's not to say there aren't exceptions. There are always uh, right. a distribution of outcomes. But when you have children in concentrated disadvantages in those schools, they can't achieve. And the schools are segregated in this country because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. Right. Now, Fair Housing Act, 1968. I mean, I think one of the things that we get taught is that Brown versus Board of Education, Fair Housing, everything was fixed. There was, uh, there, there was, um, so it was no longer legal um, uh, to bar folks from, uh, from you know, black folks from living in a certain area. Why did that not uh, uh, change things? Well, that's a very important question. I mentioned Levittown. The white families who bought those homes for about $100,000 in the mid-20th century now own homes that sell for $400,000, $500,000. African-Americans who are prohibited from participating in this wealth-generating exercise right. uh, gain none of that today. African-American incomes, on average, are about 60%, 60% of white incomes. African-American wealth is only 10% of white wealth. And that enormous... And that's, and that's traced directly back to these policies around Absolutely. Housing. That enormous disparity is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that's never been remedied. So the Fair Housing Act says in effect to African-Americans, okay, uh, you can now move into Levittown or any of these other suburbs, but they're now unaffordable to working class families of any race. Right. Uh, the white families who bequeath some of their wealth to their children and grandchildren, they now have uh, funds to make down payments on homes. African-Americans do not. And so the Fair Housing Act has very minimal effect unless we remedy the wealth gap that was created by unconstitutional policy. All right, well, we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Richard Rothstein, and we're going to get into education policy and how these things play out today. So stick around. Welcome back to Education Matters. We have Richard Rothstein with us. Richard is a uh, best-selling author and his latest book, The Color of Law, we've been discussing about housing segregation and its impact on the U.S. So let's, let's tie it in now with education. Um, 
What would you say are the biggest education consequences, and you kind of got into it before we went to break, of housing segregation? Well, we've created conditions which make it much more difficult for children to succeed in school. I mentioned before the, the disadvantages that many children coming from low-income African-American neighborhoods uh, experience. For example, uh, in many areas of this country, in most urban areas, African-American children have asthma at four times the rate of white children. It's because they live in more polluted neighborhoods and less well-maintained homes. If a child has asthma, the child is possibly going to be up at night wheezing, uh, comes to school drowsy or even sleepless. Uh, asthma is actually the largest single cause of chronic school absenteeism. Mm -hmm. Now it's not to say that some children with asthma are not going to achieve at higher levels than typical children without. There's a distribution of outcomes for every human characteristic. Right. But on average, if you take two groups of children who are equal in every respect, except one group has a higher rate of asthma than the other, that group is going to have lower average achievement. And you can say the same thing of every one of the, the economic and social disadvantages that children have come to school with. Um, African-American children have higher rates of lead poisoning than white children. So you actually mention that in the book. You talk about um, the, it's not just the housing segregation, but it's where things are cited. In fact, I think you use Warren County here in North Carolina as one of your examples where there were, I believe, if I remember exactly, it was, there were three landfills all in the black neighborhood, and there was a, they were trying to cite a fourth one, and they tried to cite it in a white neighborhood. Yes, well, typically, uh, once a neighborhood uh, became a concentrated African-American neighborhood because of the policies that I just described uh, in, in the earlier segment, the um, public officials cited uh, 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 polluted um, uh, toxic waste dumps, uh, they zoned the areas to allow industrial use, which would never be done for a white residential neighborhood. And so the neighborhoods became much less healthy places to live. And they caused not only asthma, but as I said, lead poisoning, uh, little access to healthy food because grocery stores uh, right. uh, don't locate there. And so you have children who, they have such a, a um, challenge uh, that white middle-class children don't have in uh, being able to achieve well in schools, that the idea that simply uh, having higher expectations for those children is going to solve these problems is um, unfathomable. Yeah. Now, North Carolina and the South in general has, you know, has less segregated schools than the rest of the country, I mean, because of desegregation orders. In fact, we were talking about that before we started taping about how we have, we have large county-wide districts now. Um, but we've also recently seen some, um, some efforts to try to change that. We've had, we had a, a, a bill introduced in North Carolina that was to, to break up large school districts and now there actually is a new law. Uh, it was House Bill 514 that was passed last year that's going to allow four small mostly white suburbs outside of Charlotte to create their own municipal charter schools. Um, I mean what impact would something like that have? I mean does that, does that pattern seem like something you've seen before? Well, yes, it's going on in many places, but the fundamental issue, and these two things we've been talking about are connected, the fundamental issue is it doesn't matter if you have small districts or large districts, so long as children are living in different neighborhoods, they're going to have different outcomes uh, in school because the social and economic conditions of the children in those schools are going to be different. So the only solution to this is to desegregate the neighborhoods. You can't desegregate the schools without desegregating the neighborhoods. We've tried. We've tried it with busing, obviously, and now uh, uh, 
the, that's been reversed in large part. But busing is not a really good solution because children should go to their neighborhood schools, but their neighborhoods should be integrated. Right. And if they were integrated, if we weren't concentrating the most disadvantaged children in single schools, children with those disadvantages, and there would be fewer disadvantages because they wouldn't be in less healthy neighborhoods, but children with those disadvantages could get some of the special attention and help that they need and achieve at higher levels than they ordinarily would. So housing desegregation is the key to desegregating schools and to addressing the achievement gap. Well, isn't, but I mean, I mean, just to you know, push back a little bit, but how, I mean, one, how do you do that? Because I mean, the, the fact is you talk about policies that, that, that made some of these things happen, but there's no question the, the term white flight, I mean, people are familiar with that. I mean, there were, there were situations where neighborhoods, as they got to it, they became, um, when black families moved in, white families moved out. I mean, we, we heard and seen those stories. Um, I mean, is this, a, is this an attitude change? Is this a heart change? Well, attitudes certainly always play a role. I would never say that attitudes had nothing to do with this, but government policy creates attitudes. When we concentrated African-American children in single neighborhoods, and they were overcrowded neighborhoods because there was so little housing available to them, when we concentrated those families, when we uh, provided fewer city services, less garbage collection, uh, sometimes even not even water service, uh, in African-American neighborhoods, they became slums. They became overcrowded slums. Whites looked at those communities and decided, with understandable reasons, right. that African-Americans were slum dwellers. And if they moved to their neighborhoods, their so, neighborhoods so become the slums So the government well. actually created these, some of these uh, really unfair and racist stereotypes. That's right. I, I wouldn't say that's the only cause. I'm sure. not denying that, that racial prejudice has existed since the time of slavery in this country, but government policy was a big contributor to it. Further, when you talk about white flight, if it weren't for state licensing of real estate agents who explicitly uh, created white flight, who blockbusted, who scared white families into leaving, and you know, the National Association of Real Estate Boards in the 20th century uh, had a code of ethics that prohibited real estate agents from selling homes in white neighborhoods to African Americans, state licensing agencies embraced that segregationist code of ethics. So every time a real estate agent who engaged in these kinds of scare tactics um, was licensed, the government was committing a civil rights violation. And they were, and they were actually, the, the, the local agents were the ones responsible for appraisals, which is where you get the redlining, that, again, the, the idea that all these neighborhoods, they were literally marking down homes and neighborhoods as being unsafe investments simply because there were black people there. Well, that's right, but one thing that I think uh, you, we should understand is that redlining is a term that comes from the fact that the federal government created maps of every metropolitan area in this country and colored red the areas where African Americans lived, indicating to banks and to real estate agents where, well, to banks in particular, where they could not issue mortgages that would be guaranteed by the federal government. So redlining was not a, a policy that was devised by the private sector. It was a policy of the federal government that the private sector adopted. Okay. Um, school choice, you've done some research and work in that area. You mentioned about neighborhoods being integrated. Well, I mean, we do have some integrated areas where you have school choice policies. We have private school vouchers here in North Carolina. We have uh, we've almost doubled the number of charter schools in the last eight years. So you have parents who can then opt out of an, an area. Um, I mean, sort of what do you believe, uh, sort of what is the impact of those and what do you think are some successful policies um, that can help sort of drive more school integration? Well, 
as I say, I, I'm not going to be uh, pushed off the idea that the only way ultimately to deal with school integration is to na integrate neighborhoods. Uh, school choice um, has a marginal effect. Mm -hmm. uh, children who go to integrated schools uh, do better than children who go to low-income children who go to segregated schools. There's a long history of that. Uh, busing uh, created a, a cohort of African Americans who had higher lifetime, better lifetime outcomes than those who weren't bused. But it's not an ultimate solution. Uh, first of all, it affects fairly small numbers of children. Most African-American children in this country, particularly those in big cities, live too far distant mm -hmm. from truly middle-class white areas for busing to be a solution. Uh, there's no real way around this except by desegregating neighborhoods. Uh, the other thing that has to be kept in mind about school choice is that when you compare children who choose, whose parents choose, with children who parents don't choose, there's an important unmeasurable difference between those two and that is the parents who choose are more highly motivated, more educationally oriented than the parents who don't. And so what you're doing when you have a school choice program is you're selecting the most motivated parents, the children with the most parental support and putting them into schools even though they look economically similar to the children who don't choose. And, but when you try to compare children who are identical, uh, and there are controlled experiments that can be done to do this, the outcomes for children in um, uh, charter schools are no better than the outcomes for children in regular public schools. To the extent that there are higher outcomes in some charter schools, not in all, in many charter schools there are lower outcomes, but to the extent there are higher charter school outcomes in some schools is attributable largely to the unmeasurable differences between the parents who choose schools and those who don't. Gotcha. Well, we are out of time, but I appreciate the time that you gave us today to talk about it. It's, um, um, it's a tough issue, but we need to understand the history if we're going to, as you, you and I talked before, you're optimistic because you think we actually can, if these policies created and exacerbated things, that we can use policy to fix them. So, but thank okay. you for joining us today. It's a pleasure being with you. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, when we come back, our final word. This episode was the third in a series of shows this month, all focused on race, race equity, and education. Our first was a discussion with New York Times Magazine's Nicole Hannah-Jones. She discussed the impact of school segregation on efforts to close the achievement gap between black and white students. Last week, we talked to some students here in Raleigh who are engaging directly with faculty as well as other students to address issues of equity within the schools, where you actually have a diverse school but you have what is sometimes called a school within a school. And these wonderful students and administrators there are working to reverse some of those trends. And then finally today, you heard from the great Richard Rothstein about our nation's shameful history in housing segregation and how it created deep pockets of poverty and structural disadvantages for African-Americans in this country. I'm always struck when I study these issues about how recent all of this is. I mean, Brown versus Board of Education may have been decided in 1954, but it was more than 20 years before schools were truly desegregated in any meaningful way here in North Carolina and across the South. And the fact is, some folks get tired of talking about race and feel like we need to sort of move on, but we're, we have to talk about these issues if we're going to continue to advance as a society and if our state is going to prosper where we have all of our students having all the same educational opportunities. 
That's it for this week's show. If you want to catch up on the previous episodes, please visit ncforum.org. Click on Education Matters. You can see all these shows that we just finished up. And then tune in next week for a brand new Education Matters. Thanks so much.